Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and my guest this week is Wolfgang Klotz from Cantina Tramin. Wolfgang, welcome to the show. Welcome, and thanks very much, Steve, for having me. Well, as we were chatting, um, we met for the first time um, at Vin Italy, when, and um, this was a great follow-up to that. I, I had been invited by you guys to attend an event. I guess it was before um, COVID-19. Couldn't because it, uh, for a variety of reasons, doesn't really matter. I was really looking forward to it. So um, I, when I was at the Vanitaly booth, you guys had this picture of this stunning view of you know a vineyard in the Alps, and it's just just absolutely magical. So tell us a little about uh, Wolfgang Klotz as a person, and then you can talk about uh, Cantina Trump. Me as a person, yes, I, I'm a, I've grown up here in the area, so uh, close to, to the winery next village. So grown up in a in a wine growing area, and basically the the, the passion for for wine. Came due to my to my area, to the history of the area, and and when back in the times, uh, wine was not that fancy, uh, at least in the area. Well, more than forty years ago, it was more the thing for the for the old people and the young. They looked for anything else, but what uh, but what grown at home, and then that was something um, where I thought, oh, we have such a long history in wine. And, and there was a little uh, movement towards wine quality and nice items and labels. And so this was something I, I got passionate about to, to find the good parts of, of our area. And one for sure is, is wine. So Cantina Tramen is, you've been there, I think, um, quite a few years. More than 15, yeah. So let's kind of put our listeners into the mindset of Alto Adige. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's way in the north of Italy, um, bordering on the Alps. I guess that's what uh, it means. Alto and Adige means high on the Adige River. But what makes the area unique and, and different from really any other place in the world? I mean, there are a lot of uh, points of view why this area is unique like a lot of others, obviously, are unique. But the case for Alto Adige, I mean, we can um, and see it from a cultural point of view. Um, just a simple example, uh, Alto Adige River, you said it's the high part of the Adige River. That's how we were called or got called from the Italian side. It was uh, uh, since Italy, or Alto Adige became part of Italy. And so... Alto Adige. But prior to that was part of the Austrian Empire, right? Just, yeah. Just south of Styria. Exactly. Uh, the history we have done within Austria and, and, and especially in the German-speaking Alpine area and the German world does not say uh, Hochetsch, what would be the, the German translation of Alto Adige, but it's saying South Tyrol because we are the south part of it, of Tyrol. So it's 
the point of view, if you see from the north or from the south. And so this is a combination by the end of two of two completely different uh, cultures. We have the German Alpine speaking culture, so South Germany, West Austria. What's our history? And, and the area is German speaking since more than 1,000 years, since the Bavarian people moved towards south. And before the area had his own Romanic Alpine language, what we still find in some villages in the Dolomite Mountains. So culture-wise, you will, if you visit Alto Adige and you look the area, you it looks like being in a German-speaking Alpine area, maybe in Austria. Uh, street signs are in German and Italian. Most people are speaking German, as you hear from my accent. I don't have a classical Italian accent, so I don't have an Italian name. Um, but obviously, being part since uh, a good 100 years of Italy, we got also uh, the good parts, and not only, but a lot of good parts uh, of the Italian culture and made the area richer. So we have a combination of two of two cultures, maybe on one side uh, uh, to, to, to enjoy and to see also a little bit more of a flexibility and creativity, on the other side still being more strict. And, and we see it in the food. The food is very interesting in Alto Adige because on the plates you see this Austrian-Hungarian from Gulash to the Italian uh, pasta on the risotto dishes. And, and this is uh, kind of unique from the culture side. Then is the climatical point of view, what's probably more important for, for the wine, but not only, as we need somebody to, to produce it. Um, we are in the Alps. So just being in the Alps is kind of unique. We are in mountains, so we are surrounded by the mountains. And, and then the, in the, on the south side of the Alps, the valleys usually very tight. They're very tight and steep and, and, and on right and left hand side, there's no, not so much space and room for viticulture because the valleys, like I said, are very tight. And then they grow up to 6,000 feet, starting at, at 600 feet. If you look at the map of the Alps and you find an, a map of the whole Alps in spring, you will see that most of the Alps, they're white, and there's only one, there are some, a lot of tight valleys, and there's only one valley opening up in the hearth of the Alps. So a larger area with Alsnum, and this is where we are. So we have uh, uh, like an open space with 300 sunny days with very warm day temperatures, um, almost Mediterranean climate, but then surrounded by Alps and glaciers, or mountains and glaciers, sorry. And this unique combination, I believe, we find also on the wines, translated on the wines. Obviously, there are differences between varieties and so on, but to keep it general, the wines are ripe. They have a good, good ripeness, and they have a, a, a soft acidity, but they still have a good amount of acidity. They still keep crisp. So you will find a, a wine that finishes on the palate with a beautiful ripe fruit, but still keeping the acidity and, and being a crisp and, and, and fresh white wine. Interesting that you have 300 days of sunshine and, you know, you think about clouds in the mountains, 
but it's that uh, the sunny days along with the altitude and the exposure, which allows you to do the ripening and still capture the diurnal temperature differences to result in more um, aromatic grapes, I presume. Yeah. yeah. Let's jump right to uh, the subject that's of most interest to me. The uh, area is called Tramin, or the city is called Tramin, and there's a grape there called Gewürztraminer. Tell us a little bit about about the history of Gewürztraminer, and was it named after the town of Tramin, or is it just associated with? Yeah, obviously for us, it's it's the most important uh, variety. It's the variety that that we have the largest size of vineyards of it, and the largest production. And it's also on the point of of, of uh, knowledge and, and and labels and 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 critics. It's the most important variety for Cantina Tramin, as far as we know, or as, as recent researchers uh, have shown and proven, is that Gewürztraminer is one of the o- oldest grape varieties in the world. It's a very, very old grape variety. So even uh, important varieties we still know today, like Cabernet or the Pinot, even Riesling, they all belong in the family to Gewürztraminer. So this tells us that Gewürztraminer or Tramina is a very old grape variety. Being so old, it gets very difficult to prove where the grape is from or where the grape is native from. And in fact, there is no no proof, no scientific proof, where the grape is from. There are some theories. There are some scientifics uh, claiming their theories, but they are still their only theories. And so, so far, we cannot prove that is either from here, as we cannot prove that it's not from here. The same as we cannot prove that it's from another area, but there's no proof that it's not from another area. This is as far it goes for the origin. It's very likely that it's not from here. Okay, but in any case. But the name, uh, yeah, there's one theory uh, uh, saying being so old, it came through the Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea. We are a classical, traditional traveler route from the Mediterranean Italian Sea towards north and uh, uh, and with that it might came to the area and found a very good habitat here in Trami. So that's where the Traminer in uh, Gewürztraminer comes and the Gewürz means? And the Gewürz means uh, spice. So the spicy wine in translation it would say the spicy wine from Tramin. And we are pretty much, we were the, the most southern area. And if, if we look the, the, the route from the Adriatic Sea towards the German-speaking area, it goes towards here. And we are the most southern German-speaking area. So from here, uh, the wine, it's very likely got traveled to the north. Okay. So much for the history of that. But let's talk about the wine itself. I mean, a, a very simple way to think about it, and when I talk about to people about it. Gewürz means spice. People talk about spice. It goes well with spicy food. It's a very simple wine pairing to make. The default in America, I think, with uh, Chinese or Asian food, if we can be broader than that, is you can always rely on Gewürztraminer to be a good good pairing. And generally speaking, it's it's vinified uh, dry. Um, but there's more versatility in it than than just spicy foods. Can you Talk us about food. Why Gewürztraminer has become so uh, w- more widely known and more popular? 
Yeah, that's one uh, one important uh, detail that that we, the area was able to create its own stylistic of Gewürztraminer. Let's name it the Italian style of Gewürztraminer, meaning a dry style for Gewürztraminer. So without the residual sugar, it's, it's more versatile on, on, on food pairings. Um, obviously, like you said, uh, uh, the cuisine between Vietnamese, Thai, Chinese, um, in general speaking, it goes well with uh, uh, fat dishes. Where it's a lot of fat because the high alcohol, the high alcohol content in the Gewürztraminer pairs very well with the heavier fat fat uh, dishes. There's one local item, if I can talk about the local uh, uh, food, is uh, speck. It's uh, a smoked ham, what you should be able to find also in, in, in the U.S. We do. And uh, also the Gewürztraminer has a touch of, of, of smokiness. And 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 the, the the grass of the speck, it's a good good, and the fat of the speck is a, is a good uh, combination with uh, with Gewürztraminer. Everywhere you have a high content of acidity, meaning vinegar or uh, lemon, for example, is a good combination. Gewürztraminer is very low in acidity, but bears. Bears uh, that acidity, holds that acidity. So everywhere where, where you need a strong white wine to be able to compare the strong flavors you find in the in the in the dish, either it's smoke cleaners, it's 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 fat, it's uh, spices in general. An, an Italian dish was also easy or quite easy or simple to make to to try at home. So to give you maybe something simple for for who likes to cook at home could be a saffron risotto it's a classical risotto done with with saffron inside very very simple to cook and then topped on the the finished the finished cooked uh, uh, risotto gets topped with a little bit of licorice powder and the licorice powder gives a touch of of sweetness but also bitterness and obviously a strong strong flavor together with the uh, saffron and that's a beautiful combination with with Gewurztraminer. So that's like dried licorice root and grated or something like that. Yeah, um, you find it usually where you, where you can find a good saffron. You find also uh, licorice powder, and it gets added or topped on the finished on the finished dish. Not cooked in. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can even add a little bit more or less depending on on your on your style or on your favorites. Okay, let's turn the conversation a little bit around to a, a co-op, and I think co-ops are a really interesting subject. There's a lot of benefits to co-ops. There's some drawbacks to it. You've got a hundred and what sixty producers, I think you said that are, that are part of the co-op families. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, families and, um, and trying to get them all moving in, in the same direction. If you've been there a long time, one would assume you have been successful in channeling everybody to go in the same direction. But how, how I guess the simplest way to ask it is, how is working in a co-op different from herding cats? It, it was a long process. Um, it started, so what we're doing today, let's uh, saying uh, quality wines or high, high-end wines as a cooperative winery started basically 30 years ago. And back in the times, it was a very difficult uh, transition to make people understand that not quantity, quantity is their, their better outcome, but uh, uh, higher quality will make them stay better and making, putting them in the position to reinvest in the vineyards and, and to make sure that the young generations continue what they're doing, especially for mountain viticulture. 
because Mountain Valley culture can produce great unique wines, but will never be competitive for volume wines because the costs are higher. The costs are higher for volume wines. The costs are not higher for some unique wines because unique wines need a lot of hand-working processes anyhow. Are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high-quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and other stories, and much, much more on our website, mamajumboshrimp.com. Now back to the show. And, uh, and this was started with maybe a little part of the growers. Then we had, we were on the lucky side that the market, especially the Italian market, did accept from the very beginning this uh, uh, mountain white wines with the beautiful flavors. And it's a style of white wines that Italy don't really produce so much in any other place in Italy. And, and, and this uh, market feedback gave the company the possibility to, to economically gratify the producers producing those style of, of grapes. And, 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 and that better outcome attracted other producers. Obviously, they got supported. It was a lot of, of, of uh, teaching and, and classes and meetings. But to keep it very simple, this idea that by the end, at the end of the year, they are economically better awarded than the ones not following that direction was crucial. Beside uh, uh, the, the, the strategy of, of the company itself, obviously. But then it was, yeah, it was a, a continuing growth, better quality, better wines, better wines, better market, better market, better gratification for higher quality. And, and, and this was a very good move uh, towards, towards better grapes, more attention in the viticulture, and by the end, better, better, better wines and better reputation. And, and so far it is. And another very important side is that it's, it's not a system, a model being talked only for Cantina Farming, but it's pretty much a model for the whole area. It became a model for other cooperatives in the area. The cooperatives are all small. As, as far as we talk for cooperatives, we are not the general impressive big cooperatives and with thousands of hectares. We are all medium, small-sized uh, cooperatives in a way that we really can focus on quality. And, and, and yeah, and so it happened over the last uh, two decades. And the model is, is paying off, is paying off that uh, producers get paid or earn what they need to earn in the way that this whole mountain viticulture has, has still a future. The co-op goes back to 1898 which I think is really significant in comparison to many of the other co-ops that I know about in Italy. Uh, yeah, it goes back to more than 100 years. Uh, Alto Adige has a growing back in the times, but also today was very fractionated. We have 5,000 hectares and 5,000 wine groves. So they are all very small. And selling the grapes was something very difficult because there were just a few buying, a gra- buying grapes and thousands selling. So... The power of Bergen was 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 very little, obviously, and and so by by pure necessity, this uh, uh, cooperative model started. 
it was pushed by the uh, Austrian Hungarian um, government back in the times in in the agricultural world generally and so also here in Tramin it was the parochist of the place he was also a deputy in the parliament of Vienna who st- uh, pushed this movement convincing a little group of growers to invest in a winery and hoping for a better or convincing them for a better outcome than by selling the grapes then we had almost almost 100 years of classical cooperative meaning bulk wines simple wines uh, uh, yeah red and white and this uh, basically was what we did and then uh, in the 80s mid 80s 80s it was the new direction towards uh, uh, quality and 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 focusing 100% well, let's dig into that a little bit. My friend Kathy Hoyha, who writes for Forbes, uh, did a piece on you, and she was talking about the 300 sunny days, the long ripening time, hang time, you might call it. And uh, while most wine regions tend to talk about soil, Alto Adige is all about altitude and exposure. And uh, I've heard you and others use the words sunny and alpine. Do you think those words resonate with American consumers, American wine consumers? Obviously, it's not the the common, uh, uh, or the common, uh, uh, how can I say, arguments. But I believe, from a certain point, they are also quite simple. If you hear sunny, you hear alpine. I mean, sunny stands for ripeness. Alpine stands can make think about about cool area, cool climate wines, elegant wines. And then we need to say we. We already focus on a certain kind of customer, I believe. Um, um, we don't really have with with the area bay entry level wines, so we are looking for the customer who looks for a little bit better Pinot Grigio and not the cheapest Pinot Grigio, and maybe it's open for and even looking for more information and more and more uh, uh, identity in the wines, and so it can be the it can be the Alps. Uh, Obviously, our work is to find people being attracted by by the better quality and by the Alps and by the by the by our territory. The story we tell or can tell—it's not that we invent the story. Gewurztraminer is not the only variety that you guys grow there. You grow a whole bunch of other ones. You mentioned Pinot Grigio, but you have a number as well. So, can you tell us about what are the more common white wines, and then also talk about the reds? I just would open the the point altitudes. So we are starting at 200 meters, go, growing up to 900 meters. And that's that's the reason why we don't have Gewürztamina only. It's not, not the decision. It's it's the, the area making us looking for other varieties. Because especially Gewürztamina is a very sensitive. It would never make any sense. And we would never have a, a, a balanced Gewürztamina above uh, 600 meters and then 550 meters maybe two years out of 10. And it won't be a balanced Gewürztamina below 300 meters. I'm, I'm kind of simplifying because obviously explanation wins uh, count in too. But just to say, we need uh, great varieties for the very warmest vineyards, starting with Cabernet and Merlot. It's a very tiny part, but there are some areas, calcareous soil, very sun exposed, very warm. It's called, for example, one of the areas called uh, uh, the Burning Valley. And, and there, those varieties are the best to plant in. Um, but talking about the main varieties, there is uh, Gewürztamina on the middle altitude, and then is Pinot Grigio, a little below and, and, and above. 
And uh, the second most important variety in our case is Chardonnay. And it's an Alpinestein Chardonnay. We are on calcareous soil, soils, so the, the results for Chardonnay are very interesting. And I believe we are also a- able to, to create or to have our own identity in this beautiful Chardonnay world. I mean, Chardonnay grows great, great wines in, in, in the U.S., in, in California, in, in, in Oregon, in South America, and Australia. So they are uh, very good examples in, in all over the world. And, and I believe uh, we see that uh, our Alpine area has the potential to add one piece to this beautiful Chardonnay parcel in the world. So simply, maybe even simplistically, there's Oki Chardonnay, which is like has been kind of a, a go-to thing in the United States. And now people are, there's a big audience for non-Oki Chardonnay. Those are two camps. Where does Chardonnay from Alto Adige fit or is is it a third leg on a triangle no i mean i believe obviously we do have the stainless steel primary fruit driven chardonnay that's a, a great glass of wine uh, for a certain level of quality and price but if we really want uh, the the best satisfaction of our area and the variety uh, we are convinced that oak plays a role and plays a very important role in the sense of uh, that the style of the oak is very important. That's why it's a very important role. It's not that it's the important, the most important part of the wine, but how it's used and which style of oak is used. And I think here... You mean American versus Slavonian versus... Yeah, and, and even how they toast that. And I believe here we have seen a big, big, big change. And I believe as far as what I taste from the U.S., for example... Uh, the good uh, examples, they moved away from this kind of sweet uh, vanilla-driven oak to a nicely smoky oak touch, uh, what keeps much more elegant, put, pushes the wine more in, in front and not so much the oak, but still gives an added value to the wine. And and if it's handled in a proper way, um, I believe that's, that's where Chardonnay finds his best. Okay. And uh, tell us about the reds. You have some unusual varieties. Yeah, uh, red. Uh, from our perspective. From I your perspective. <laughs> although the most important also here, cool climate area is Pinot Noir. And, and then there's a local uh, gray variety uh, named Lagrine. And what's a deep uh, color, deep dark colored red wine. Looks almost like an over-concentrated red wine, but then in the once on the palate, uh, I believe you, you're very quick back to the mountains. It has a, a, a much more driven acidity. It's not that concentrated, not that cla- not, not that complex. It's quite a light wine on that on that, te- that terms. Lagrine, L-A-G-R-E-I-N. And then uh, we do also Schiava. What's another indigenous grape variety? And it's it's a red wine uh, for a lot of especially. Uh, people who are used to American red wines uh, having the first glass of Schiava, they may might rethink it's it's a red wine or it's a rosé, so it's a very light red wine. But it's beautiful drinking, especially in December, with a little chill on it. 
It's a, a nice, uh, light uh, red wine and a good food pairing combination for, for elegant food. Now, you also have one thing in the history that I thought was pretty neat. Uh, you had a, a dessert wine that got a 100-point rating by Robert Parker. Um, um, I probably, I'm guessing you're sold out of that one, but I'm interested in tasting that when I get a chance to come up there. Talk about the importance of scores in your mind and to your American importer and what role they play in um, marketing your brands in the U.S. I mean, scores, uh, uh, scores are important on, on, on different levels. Uh, first of all, they're important for our, our own side of production, especially being a cooperative to, to give another sign to our producers and even to the team that we are on on a good 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 direction that the market or the critics are, are uh, seeing a potential in, in this wine or in this style of wine or this direction what we do then obviously they are important on the market they're important to to get the positive feedback from the market and that if positive feedback allows us to continue this quality direction and obviously on the other hand uh, there is there has happened or been a change on the scores uh, from like 20 years ago there were scores and then people really oh, oh, how can i say uh, scores had a direct a direct impact uh, yeah. on the sales on the sales and and even if we think having online online shops what we have today if we would have had, had those online shops 20 years ago those scores would have moved a ton of wine. Because back in the times, if a wine had a certain a certain award, people just looked for looked for that award. And nowadays, becoming much more critics. What's well, a good side? I mean, the more critics are, the more wine culture gets gets promoted. Obviously, the single award doesn't have the power uh, being won out of I don't know how much uh, today. So on an international uh, term, we've seen that a one hundred point. First of all, uh, it's the only and first Italian white wine, so it's even a special 100 point. It's an, an enormous push, push, obviously, because it's unique. And what's the name of that wine? That was the Epocale Gewürztraminer uh, with a little bit of a shitter sugar on it. It's a dessert wine, not really sweet. Yeah, it's like, like those Rieslings. And it's a wine that needs time. And with the time, this sugar gets tra transformed from from sweetness to power and the wine gets into a balance what's impressive to see that that it still is very very elegant and and finishes with a with a good good uh, acidity and the sweetness what the wine has when it's young really kind of disappears and gets transformed in in in, in power happens in gewürztraminer and as we maybe uh, no, from from twenty thirty year thirty year old Auslese uh, Riesling, for example. Yeah. Okay, then definitely want to taste this stuff. Epocale. Epocale. Epocale, because it it recalls the epoch in our area when also here the Gewürztraminer was done in a sweet style. Okay. As I told you, the last one hundred two hundred years Gewürztraminer here was done, and still is by far the most in a dry. Style you Okay. Um, one last point on uh, location. My understanding is, in order to get there, you have to take an aerial tram. Is that true? Yeah. Um, so we are we are not easy 
located. So the simplest from from the US, or at least the way I choose usually, is Verona Airport. And Verona Airport uh, towards Frankfurt or Munich. And and from there, from Verona Airport, it's an hour, an hour and a half driving. Oh, you can drive. So it's not like uh, isola- so isolated you need the aerial tram. No, you can drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can take the aerial tram as opposed to you must take the aerial tram. That still must might be a lot of fun. Okay, well, let's see if we can bring this to a close, though. I, and I mentioned to you that I like to end my interviews with a uh, question about what's the big takeaway of, of all the things that we talked about. Um, if you could leave one thought in the mind of um, listeners and, and think of the trade now as opposed to consumers, what's the big takeaway? What, what can they put to use immediately based on what they heard us talking about? Put it in, in a very short uh, way or one sentence to so the conclusion. Um, I would say uh, that the, the, the potential of what, what the customer can find in Altoadige wines is a good concentration, uh, a positive concentration in the sense of ripe fruit, like I said in the beginning, uh, a, a beautiful mouthfeel of, of ripe fruit, but with a very lively acidity and, and a soft acidity. What, yes, makes sure that the wines keep, keep uh, the saltness and, and keeps you going on but also gives you a, a good mouthfeel of, of ripeness. Okay. Um, I, I would add, just from what we were just talking about, that it's a wine that's indigenous. It has all the things, uh, sustainable production, all of these things that the American consumer wants, but it's not so far from the known or the familiar um, as to be strange. And um, it's... I won't say readily available, but it is certainly uh, not uncommonly available to find that. And certainly it's something that um, somebody, if you're interested in uh, Cantina Tramon wines and Gewürztraminer in general, um, go to your local store and you can find it. And the same thing would be true, or they'll order for you. The same thing would be, be true on the trade side, um, helping broaden the uh uh, acceptance of the American palate to wines that have tremendous history, um, uniqueness, and frankly go fabulously with with food. We all like spicy food these days, so it should be Gewurztraminer every day, right? Yes, hope so. That's my answer to my question. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, our guest today has been uh, Wolfgang Klotz from Cantina Tremen which is a co-op way in the north of Italy um, in the Alps. And if you ever get a chance to go up there, um, I would take it. I haven't had the opportunity yet, but I'm I'm working on it. Right, Wolfgang? (laughs) And uh, thank you all for listening this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with another interesting conversation from another point of view or perspective of the Italian wine market in America. Thank you all for listening. Wolfgang, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. And hope to see you soon here in Cantina Tram. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, guys. 
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.